Thank you, Brother Johnson. I'm becoming more relaxed as I stay here in this conference. You've been a marvelous audience, I will say that. And I'm beginning to look at you as <laughs> Did, did I say something wrong? <laughs> I'm beginning to look at you all as a, an extension of Gazino's Bible Church. We've taken enough with us, and they said they're really going to be rooting for me and praying for me. And uh, somebody's been praying, I know that, because I felt relaxed and comfortable and opening up the word to you. Uh, I appreciate very much having this uh, part in the ministry of this conference. I've said it before and I want to say it again. And uh, many of you had made, have made some lovely remarks concerning some of the blessing you've received from the Word. And that's what we're here for. We're not to talk about ourselves. We're to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the greatest job that a preacher has is to exalt the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know where you could exalt him better than in the Old Testament offerings. Now, I wish I had much more time to talk on these offerings than what I've had, only four one-hour periods, or short of one-hour periods. And I don't think that I could deal really with a trespass offering or with a sin offering unless I had four such periods, and then I'd have to leave a lot unsaid. The Word of God is so profound, it's so deep, that it's almost impossible for the human mind to comprehend everything that's in it. And I'm looking forward to the time when I'm going to undergo a mental and physical change so that I can know as I am now known of Him. And it's going to be a treat to be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air and be taken on into glory and then to be able to look at the one who actually died for our sins, the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us unto God. I want to take you back to the book of Leviticus chapter 3 now, and the chapter is not very long, so I want to read the entire chapter. Chapter 3, and I might say before we finish chapter 3 that the law of the offering begins with the 11th verse of chapter 7, and takes you over to verse 34. Chapter 7, verses 11 to 34, you have the law of the offering. If I'm not able to say very much about the law of the offering, I want you to take your time sometime in the near future to look it over very carefully and see what it's all about. We're getting into the worship section of the offerings of the book of Leviticus. We started with a sin section, the sin and the trespass offering. And they are very important for us. And I took the end and working back to the beginning according to this particular order of things in the book of Leviticus because I believe sin is quite a problem among us. We are saved a short while and then we find out that we still have the capability of sinning. We have the old man with us. And we find that the sinful nature is not uh, burnt out or anything. It doesn't come to an end. It stays with us. And there's a conflict of the two natures with us until the day of death or until the day of our departure by way of meeting our Lord in the air. And of course there are a lot of believers, they wonder that since the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross, just which ones did he die for and for which particular sins can we enter into a measure of peace and joy? There is a close friend of mine and one of Peter, uh, Neil Stams, I'm quite sure, Brother Stams, and that is Peter Hugendam, who uh, was a Pattersonian, and he had a gospel tent pitched for the preaching of the gospel in Prospect Park, New Jersey, one time. And there was a young lady from the Holland uh, uh, family, and she was raised like I was, a Christian Reformed, and she came to know Christ as her Savior through the plain preaching of the gospel by Brother Peter Hugendam. And then she went off to work in the office where she worked during the daytime while she came out to the evening sessions of Brother Hugendam's services in the tent. <clears throat> she seemed to be very radiant and very happy at the beginning of her life in Christ. But as the week wore on, Brother Hugendam noticed that there was just a little change in her countenance. And so he thought one evening that he would talk to her about it, and she had a problem. And the problem was this, that she realized that from the moment that she was saved, her sins were forgiven. She entered into a wonderful measure of peace of having been accepted in the beloved. 
and whatever teaching Brother Hugendam was able to impart to her in those meetings. But then this thought suddenly came to her, but I have found since the night that I got saved here in this tent that I have sinned, and it seems so easy to sin. And then thoughts came to her mind that took the peace of the forgiveness of sin out of her heart, and then she began to categorize her sin because she thought there were sins in the past and there were sins in the present and sins in the future. Now, she was satisfied as far as the sins of the past were concerned. She entered into the joy of believing that they were forgiven. But then the sins of her present and the future sins just bothered her considerably. And she told Brother Sam about it. Uh, pardon me, Brother Hugendam. And so Brother Hugendam said to her, Now, what are the sins that are troubling you mostly? And she said, Well, the fear of sinning tomorrow. She says, I know the night that I got saved, all of my sins of the past were forgiven, and I thank the Lord for it. But she says, I am troubled about the fact that today I am capable of sinning, and tomorrow I am capable of sinning. Is this going to go on? And what about my eternal security? And Brother Hookendam very wisely said, How many of your sins were past when the Lord Jesus Christ died for them? And she thought for a moment, and then she said, None. He said, how many of your sins were in the present category when he died for them? She says, none. He said, how many of your sins were in the future category? She says, all. Well, he says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And uh, that's the reason why I started with the trespass offering and the sin offering, because sin does come into our hearts and our minds, and Satan would like to disturb us and take the peace that ought to be ours constantly, day after day, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have no fear for the result of tomorrow's sins. The word presumptuous and the word inadvertently in the Old Testament scripture doesn't bother me. We're in the dispensation of God's grace. The Lord Jesus Christ has gloriously anticipated every one of them and every kind that could ever be committed. And I find acceptance in the Beloved, and that acceptance is going to be good for tomorrow and for next month and until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And that's why the scripture says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, here in Leviticus chapter 3, we have the peace offering. It's a very important offering because now we find that the people of God are brought into the fellowship of what has been wrought to the glory of God at the cross. It begins by saying, and if his oblation or sacrifice be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And he shall offer of the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards. And the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar, upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood thereof round about upon the altar. And he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat thereof and the whole rump it shall be it shall he take off hard by the backbone, and the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver, with the kidneys it shall he take away. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, it is the food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of it, and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron of the con and the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood thereof upon the altar round about. And he shall offer thereof his offering, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covereth the inwards, 
and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a per perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that ye neither uh, that ye eat neither fat nor blood. May the Lord bless the reading of His word to us. Now you can approach the burnt uh, the particular offering, the peace offering, from either one end of the group of offerings or the other. If you start with a burnt offering, you will then be led to appreciate the peace offering because in the burnt offering you have the perfect dedication of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the securing of the glory of God in a scene in which his attributes have been trampled underfoot by men. If you approach it from the sin and the trespass offering side, they show the perfect removal of all that would hinder the fellowship enjoyed typically in the peace offering. God has removed anything and everything that could stand in the way of our worship and of our adoration of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sin offering and the trespass offering takes care of the one. And the perfect obedience of the other takes care of the other aspect of it. And so we find that the peace offering here is between the burnt offering and the meal offering, which both speak of the perfections and the thorough dedication of our Lord Jesus Christ to the accomplishment of the will of God. And we'll have more to say about that tomorrow. And on the other hand, the perfect removal of sin, the only thing that could hinder the heart of a person to be fully occupied with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find that the burnt offering and the peace offering were sweet savor offerings, but the sin offering and the trespass offering were non-sweet savor offerings. There's a good reason for that, because in the first two, the peace offering and the, and the burnt offering, they were more consistent with the very holy nature and character of God, as God would love to see it expressed. But on the other hand, as far as the last two, the sin offering and the trespass offering, they have to do with sin and God's judgment. We have an expression of his holiness in the judgment of sin. But in the other, we have an expression of his holiness in the acceptance of the sinner by virtue of the death of Christ on the cross. I have no doubt about my acceptance before God in the person of Christ. Because as he is, so am I in this world. I cannot doubt the divine acceptance of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's already there, and I am there in him, and so are we all who are saved by the grace of God. Now, once again, we find the imperfections of the believer of these particular people back in chapter 3, and their lack of complete apprehension of the person of Christ and so on. And, of course, I doubt whether they knew very much about what all of this was about. I'm not trying to say that. But typically we find that the female and the various grades of sacrifices would speak in our lives of a failure of complete apprehension of all that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. I don't have a complete apprehension of it. I wish I did. I am looking forward to the day when I shall. And I believe that we are all guaranteed a complete apprehension of all that he did for us on the cross. Right now, our finite minds cannot take it in. But we find this particular imperfection in the worshiper and in the imperfection of his thoughts in, first of all, the female is permitted to be offered in verse 6. You notice that? And if his offering for his sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock, male or female. And then I want you to notice that in the law of the offering, we have the mention of leaven, which is very important. And that sometimes stumbles a young believer. Because you remember that in the meal offering of chapter 2, you don't remember it unless you've read it at some time or studied it. But in Leviticus chapter 2, you have the meal offering, and no leaven is allowed to permeate that uh, meal. But now we have the entrance of leaven and the permission of leaven. And in chapter 7 and verse 13, 
we find these words. Chapter 7 and verse 13. I'll read at verse 12. If he offer it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes. Because this is going to speak about the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, his moral perfections. Unleavened cakes mingled with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Now we have sometimes in our thoughts and in the thoughts of some theologians and in the thoughts of some so-called Christians in uh, Christendom today, thoughts that would equal, be equal to the admission of leaven into the truth pertaining to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this was not allowed to be offered. But when you get into verse 13, it says, Besides the cakes he shall offer for his offering, leaven bread. Now the unleavened cakes in verse 12 speaks of the spotless moral nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we get into the leavened bread of verse 13, it shows you the leaven that's in the character of the man who is offering it. I still have the old man with me. There is leaven in my old nature. It's all leaven as far as that's concerned. And God does, and I thank God for it. He graciously takes into consideration that we are not perfect as far as our uh, moral persons are concerned. We find that uh, we still uh, sin and are capable of sinning, and that idea is thought of and brought in in verse 13, leaven bread. It simply shows us that there are imperfections to be found in the offerer. None of us have ever approached God in the perfections of ourselves. We have always been accepted in the perfections of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that person there is no leaven, but in us there is leaven. And therefore it is, it is permitted in this particular offering. Now my message is supposed to be concerning the cross in the peace offering. And we thank God there's much of the cross in that offering. But I would like to thank God, first of all, the need of peace in relation to the nation of Israel. All of these offerings have to do, first of all, primarily with the nation of Israel. And then we make application to us. And we thank God that there are applications to be made to us. And that's why it says whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. We can get a lot of good, practical, everyday lessons from the Old Testament scripture. And here we find some brought before us, I'm quite sure. I want you to turn with me, please, to the 26th chapter of this same book of Leviticus. We have a lovely statement concerning the peace that God intends that Israel shall someday enjoy. She has never enjoyed this peace in its fullness. We have seen indications of it, but right now you know she's not enjoying this peace. Nothing would be better for that little state of Israel than to have peace, but she's not going to have it until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, who is the Prince of Peace. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 6 says, And I will give peace in the land. Now this is a promise. It is an unconditional promise. If there are any conditions pertaining to it, it has to the time when the peace would be brought in. But the day is coming when the peace is going to be in the land. And as the, and as the scripture says in another portion, it will be like the flowing river. It says in verse 6, And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. She can't do that today, can she? As far as the nation is concerned. When could she ever do this? Oh, there was a possibility of it having been done in the past, but she passed by the opportunity by not accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as the bringer of peace. And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall a sword go through your land. Has that ever taken place up until now? Never. Shall it take place? Yes, it shall in the future. And I trust it won't be too very far off. I want to give you a few scriptures concerning peace, concerning the people of Israel, not us. I could take you immediately to the book of Colossians chapter 1 or the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and talk about the peace concerning the mystery. I'll bring that in a little later because that's application. Let's get interpretation now. 
God intended through this particular peace offering to tell the people of Israel that the Lord Jesus Christ would die on the cross to secure not only a political peace but also a spiritual peace. They have not enjoyed either one of those two and we know why. But I want to give you the scripture to show you that they have not and the reason why. When you go back to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 there's a lovely promise made there and we find that uh, this happens to be concerning the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ and we have one of the names of Jehovah brought before us in, in uh, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 and in the name of Jehovah there which is Shiloh we have the suggestion of the work that he would bring to pass when he would be accepted by the people and actually be the gathering center of the people of Israel in the future. It says in verse, in verse 10 of chapter 49 of Genesis, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be. Now we find in this 10th verse, or rather people, I should put that in the singular as it is here, God is talking about the nation of Israel and someday they are going to be gathered around him. They could have had the opportunity 2,000 years ago but according to the determinate counsel of God we find that the Lord Jesus Christ was taken by them and crucified but then given an opportunity at Pentecost to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah which they refused and today we are going through a period of 2,000 years in which the people of Israel do not have the Lord Jesus Christ as their gathering center. But it says here, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Now Shiloh means peace bringer. So we find the particular purpose or the objective of his coming, of his advent, is in order to bring peace to a people who would be tossed about and be without peace undoubtedly for many, many years as we have seen it to be. When you go to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we have another reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in relation to peace. I'm quite sure we all know this. This is a good Christmas verse. Isaiah chapter 9, it shouldn't only be a Christmas verse. It ought to be a verse for any time of the year. We shouldn't confine it to a season. This is a lovely verse of Scripture. It says in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. Now we're getting down to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find his advent mentioned in that, in that Genesis 49.10. And the purpose of that ad advent veiled in the name which is given to Jehovah there, Shiloh. Now it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now that's our Lord Jesus Christ. This is given to us hundreds of years prior to the actual advent of the Lord Jesus. How much these people understood about this, I don't know. I doubt very much whether they understood hardly anything of it. But we find it's there, and by these verses of Scripture they should have recognized the Lord Jesus at his advent. And I believe that's the reason why they were given, to give the people of Israel hope and give them an opportunity of recognizing the one that was so unrecognizable by them when he did come. Now in this same book of Isaiah chapter 53, we have a lovely scripture. We're well acquainted with that one too. Isaiah chapter 53. And at verse 5. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. Now here is a verse of scripture set in a wonderful setting and most of the time we take it and apply it in the gospel as though it includes in the primary purpose of the giving of this prophetic verse as though it includes all the world. But I don't believe that. I don't see myself in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 accepting as we find the truth of the cross magnified and expanded through the mystery that God gave to the Apostle Paul. But I don't see myself or the nations included in Verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our, that's the people of Israel, that's not the nations around about. He was wounded for our transgressions. Here we have the sin offering and the trespass offering. This is not the offering of Exodus chapter 12, which was only killed once and for all time. 
That's the redemption offering. We have to make a clear distinction in the Bible whether we are talking about redemption or atonement. And we get them so horribly confused that when we get back to Isaiah 53, all we see is redemption. And that is not the case. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Now that's Israel. The cross was going to be the place where the chastisement of God's, uh, of their peace would be laid upon the Lord Jesus to pave the way for peace, not only of a, uh, of a political nature, but also of a spiritual nature. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now when we go into Luke chapter 2, we will find the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ and what took place among the shepherds who were told about this. In Luke chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14, we find the announcement made to the shepherds that the Lord Jesus Christ had been born. And then something takes place. It says in verse 13 of Luke chapter 2, And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So when he came, it was announced to the shepherds that the coming of our Lord Jesus was to bring peace, not to us primarily, to the people of Israel. And it was going to be, according to Isaiah chapter 53, by his being bruised at what we know to be the place of Calvary. So here we find the announcement of the birth of the Shiloh of Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 and of the Prince of Peace of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And then to these shepherds, the heavenly host, sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Now we have not seen this peace come to this earth. We find that at Christmas time we see billboards with parts of these scriptures displayed, giving us the idea that this verse of scripture has been completely fulfilled, but it has not. The groundwork was laid by the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any blessing that comes to Israel in the future, or any blessing that is ours now, those blessings are always based on the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died once for all. And even though they did not accept the terms of peace when they were made to them back at Pentecost, we find that they will accept the terms of peace someday in the future. Not that he will have to die again in order to make new terms for them, but it will all be based upon the one death of Christ on the cross. But did this peace actually settle over the land as promised in the book of Leviticus chapter 26, the verse, first verse that we read? No. Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ became very apparent at a very early stage. I want you to look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Remember at the beginning of the week I told you that Luke's Gospel is the peace offering. So it's not surprising for us to be turning to Luke's Gospel. It's in Luke's Gospel we have the suggestion of fellowship because we find that the prodigal, a picture of the people of Israel, we find that he was taken home and we find that a great feast was prepared for him and that's what this particular uh, offering is all about. In Luke chapter 19 and at verse 41 to 44, the Lord Jesus Christ is approaching the city of Jerusalem. He has been rejected for three and a half years, close on to uh, three and a half years. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he says this in verse 41, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground of thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the day of thy visitation." So when the Lord Jesus did come, according to the promises of the Old Testament time, they did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that they didn't recognize the day of their visitation. 
This was a day of national blessing, the advent of Christ, as they were only willing to see in the Lord Jesus Christ the seed of the woman and the promised uh, Prince of Peace of the book of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. These people, some people have come to the conclusion that here we have a presumptuous sin. Does it not look as though the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was deliberately planned by the people of Israel and presumptuously executed by them? I believe this is one reason why there is such a vast number of people in Christendom today who claim that there is no opportunity for Israel to ever be to be regathered and be the Lord's people again. Paul anticipates the question of the permanent casting off of the people of God. I was raised to believe that, that we are now in the millennium. There are books on the market preached by, uh, written by the denomination that I was raised in. And they tell us that we are now in the millennium. They can't get away apparently from a millennium, but they don't know what the millennium is all about or who are supposed to be the head in that millennium, the head of the nations. And so I believe there are a lot of people who have come to the conclusion that here is a presumptuous sin. And you know what we said about presumptuous sin? Well, we didn't say it. God said it, didn't he, in Numbers chapter 15. But is this a presumptuous sin? Have you ever thought of it? Can we call this a sin of inadvertence? What is the word that's used instead of the word that I have brought in, which is inadvertence? What is the word actually used to describe the sins committed under the sin offering and the trespass offering? Now, if you can find this sin connected with the sin offering and the trespass offering, you know there's hope for Israel. And what is the word? It is ignorance. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ very plainly said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Apostle Peter uses the word ignorantly in the book of Acts. And there we find a word that's going to open up the door of hope for the nation of Israel so that she cannot be cast off. And the Abrahamic covenant, which is without uh, any condition whatever, is going to be brought in. And the people of Israel are going to occupy the land. Now we're talking about the people of Israel, aren't we? So I find that when he said, when the Lord Jesus said on the cross in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Lord Jesus took this sin of the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross out of the realm of presumptuous sins and put it in the category of sins of ignorance. I think that's a remarkable thing. Now, he wasn't lying when he said they did it ignorantly. He looks deeper in the heart than we can look. We look on the surface and we say presumptuous sin. And when we listen to the Apostle Peter and he accuses them in his Pentecostal message, accuses the people of Israel of the crime of the cross, he says, Him have ye taken up by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. If you want to look at that on the surface as we are prone to look at it and only capable of looking at it, we would have to say presumptuous. And if that's the case, God has to cut off the nation of Israel. But it's not in that category. It's in the category of sins of ignorance. And the Lord Jesus Christ as their sin offering and as their trespass offering has made ample provision for their acceptance. And someday in the future they shall be accepted. Now this explains the need for the Pentecostal message of repentance and baptism. Because God is now dealing with them after the death, burial, and resurrection, and the death is that of a sin offering and the trespass offering for a sin of ignorance, which the Lord Jesus Christ plainly says is what took place on the cross at the hands of the people of Israel. Now he is going to give to those people who are still in covenant relationships with Jehovah an opportunity to do two things, repent and be baptized with a guarantee that they shall receive the remission of sins. 
Now, too many times we go back to Acts chapter 2 and we think of those people of Israel in the same sense in which we would think of an audience of unsaved people to whom we are preaching the gospel. They don't fit into a category like that at all. We take the gospel of grace and we take it out to the unsaved people. They are not in covenant relationships with Jehovah. Therefore, we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is a very simple message for them. But now the Lord only has one message for those who are yet in covenant relationship with Jehovah. Because of the way the Lord Jesus Christ classified the death, his death on the cross at their hands. And now he says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the remission of sins. But they rejected him. And they showed their continued hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. And now it doesn't become a sin of of ignorance so much, but they deliberately rejected the Lord Jesus. And now for 2,000 years, we find that the people of Israel have been set aside. But someday, because of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, they are going to be brought in, and the blessing is going to be theirs. Now the Apostle Paul is saved by the grace of God. And the risen Christ at the Father's right hand is going to make a revelation to him since the people of Israel said no a second time. And in the book of Acts chapter 13 and verses 38 and 39, we read a message that we have never read before in the book of Acts. It's entirely new. We find that God is beginning to reveal the mystery to the Apostle Paul. And there is a gospel that is consistent with that mystery. So we don't expect the same gospel of the kingdom, which is repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So in Acts chapter 13 and verse 38 and 39, it says, Be known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now when you go to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, there's more added to these remarkable uh, revelations made to the Apostle Paul. And if in chapter 13 of the book of Acts a person is justified by faith and not by the works of the law, we find now he says something about those justified people. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the peace offering, which was originally planned for the people of Israel for both political and spiritual reasons, that peace might be theirs in both areas completely, since they have rejected it, now we see that we are receiving the benefits of that offering. And it's only through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are brought to receive that peace through faith in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, what is the basis of that peace? The same cross that forms the basis for the peace that will be Israel's in the coming day. Go to Colossians chapter 1 now, please. Colossians chapter 1. Another very familiar portion of Scripture. But it's good to read them over again and see that they're still there. Sometimes we're inclined to forget that some of these marvelous words of our Lord Jesus Christ given by inspiration have remained in the Bible. You know, Satan likes to work on our forgetters and he wants us to forget some of these marvelous statements. But this is the backbone to Christianity. So that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. I'm so glad that in in this verse he doesn't start with heaven and come down to the earth. Because you still could go lower, you know. And some people are going lower in order to bring in a sort of reconciliation that would include all of the lost and Satan himself. But God begins on the earth and it goes in a direction that can't go any higher than the heavens. 
By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now what is the result of all this? The result is this, that if you and I have been reconciled unto God by the blood of his cross, we should live in daily fellowship with him as is suggested in the peace offering. You see, the peace offering is something that the offerer brings, but upon which God himself can feed and find complete satisfaction. You notice it's the priests and the sons of Aaron and Aaron, and they typify in that particular instance God and not the people, but they feast upon what the man brings, the heave shoulder and the breast. And God loves to do nothing better than to feast upon our thoughts concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. You can say a lot of things in the presence of God in your praying, but the moment you say, God, I thank you from the depths of my heart for your son, it takes his attention. And I think he feeds on that. He loves nothing better than worship, and that is worship when we are occupied with the person of Christ. God is the recipient of our worship. But we find the Lord Jesus Christ is that which we bring before him. When have you brought a peace offering, so to speak, before him? When have you just spent a little time in his presence? Instead of asking for everything under the sun, you simply spend your time thanking God for what Christ has done for you. You see, that's what, feast, that's what he feasts upon. Now the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19 that God is faithful who has brought us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A fellowship has come out of this reconciliation. I often say to our people at Kizzy Mills that there is no other need for any other fellowship than the fellowship of members of the body of Christ. We have been tied down with so many fellowships. Not too long ago there was a lady saved by the grace of God in Forsyth and uh, then we talked about, oh, she came to us and told us what particular group she joined, not a religious group, a lodge. And I said, well, I sure wish I got before you before you did this. Well, she says, I didn't actually do it yet, but I'm too far in it to back down now. I said, you are not too far in it to back down now. You don't have to do this. This is going to be detrimental to the spiritual growth and development of your soul. And I would like to say this, that if you and I have been reconciled unto God by the blood of the cross, we don't need any other fellowship than the fellowship of saints. Now you put it to the test. You might say, in my, neighbor, I've, in my neighborhood, I've got to join this or that. And in my business, I've got to do this and that. I'll leave it up to you as to whether you should or should not. But may I say, for the growth of the soul, there is no other fellowship required than the fellowship of saints. God has brought us into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I know that it's rather difficult for young people to confine their fellowships to Christians because in some areas, where will you get Christians who are like-minded? That is a problem. I like to think of young people among us today, and it's so good to see so many young people at this conference. I love to see that. They've got their whole future ahead of them. How is that future going to be lived if the Lord Jesus tarries? It depends on some choices that you are going to make. Now I want you to, to tell you this, that in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, it says, All that be clean shall eat thereof. Now you've got to maintain a measure of holiness in your life in order to fellowship with the Lord in these things pertaining to his Son. You cannot play loose with those defiling things of this life and expect that you are going to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. The Bible teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we don't get this, this instruction too much for young people today, but it's so necessary. It says in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship, and that has to do with a peace offering, 
The fellowship of the peace offering flows out as far as we are concerned, out to the reconciliation that God has made possible for us who are saved by the grace of God. The moment we have been reconciled unto him, we are brought into a fellowship. Now God wants to show you there are fellowships to be avoided. And therefore, he says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Now, I don't want to add to the word, but if I were to take the sense of the New Testament scripture and the mystery as revealed through the Apostle Paul, I believe I could go a step farther than what's said here, and that is this. You are not to look at unequal yoke as simply represented in a person who is saved marrying a person who is not saved. I believe it goes a step farther. The message is the message of the day. And it represents the program of today as far as God is concerned. I would suggest that you young people look for someone else, someone in that same area so that they will not be a hindrance to you. You're liable to say, well, this person is a lovely person. Uh, she's saved, and I don't see where I am going contrary to the word if I become engaged and marry the person. Now, that person can be a great hindrance in your life if you are persuaded of the grace message. And then you marry someone who is not persuaded of the grace message. And the only one who can cool off in that marriage is the one that's persuaded in the grace message. And the cooling element is the fact that really, basically, you have married and brought about an unequal yoke. May I just suggest that? I can't force that on you, of course. But I know that there are young people and I know that there are older people who have made different choices in that direction. I believe the testimony of anybody here that married a saved person but was not in harmony with their program of today, they can tell you that there's not complete harmony in the family. Amen. And I believe that God will bless your patience in waiting until God sends someone along with whom you can live compatibly in the truth for today. Now you put him to the test. It's far better to remain single the rest of your life than to live in the agony of incompatibility, spiritually speaking, for 20 years. So 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I don't want to steal somebody's thunder for tonight, but I just want to take a verse or a part of a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21. I'll just give it to you as it is, and then you can think about it. It says, Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Now, that's, that's a fact. You cannot. Oh, perhaps physically you could, but God says spiritually you can't do it. God is not going to accept anything from you as tokens of fellowship with him if your fellowship comes from a divided heart. You know what the message of 1 John is? It's a message of fellowship. You can look at it, please, if you want to, because I, I'm just... Speaking about this fellowship, it has to be untainted as far as it's possible. But in 1 John chapter 1, we have a fellowship that is being offered by the Apostle John and undoubtedly to Hebrew believers. If I need straightening out on that, you take me to task. He says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you all may have, also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I believe that the writer is referring back to the physical context and the physical voice and the things which they saw and heard and handled. So that if you want to translate it under the mystery, I would say that he is actually saying in the words of the Apostle Paul, that which I have seen and heard declare I unto you. You see, 
that ye also may have fellowship with me. And truly, our fellowship together is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship has changed from the earthly Jesus, which the Hebrew people could enjoy, to the living, exalted Christ at the Father's right hand as the head of the body that the members can today enjoy. And I want you to notice also that there is a condition to that fellowship in the same chapter. It says in verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We have to watch our lives. We can't have a divided heart. The Lord Jesus Christ wants to occupy the whole heart. He's our head. He's our Lord. He is our Lord. Worship thou him. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now may I ask you a question in the closing moment? Is our walk in fellowship with Christ compatible? It's for us to answer this question. It can be. It may call for a measure of separation. Maybe you'll have to do something about it. You may have to act upon it, and I hope you do, if your life is not compatible with a fellowship that God has brought us into with the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we trying to make the best of two fellowships? One which is the fellowship of saints, representing heaven and the other representing this earth. If so, may I say in the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, some people are going to say to you, to say, I lose my salvation, then he becomes my father all over again. No, not that at all. He will never cease to be your father if you are saved by the grace of God. You can divide your heart if you want to. You can overlook what's been said and just live after your own carnal ways. He will always be father as far as relationship to you as a child in the family is concerned. But he cannot act in the capacity of a father. He cannot bring out all that's in his loving heart to you. He's got to withhold constantly. You're not in a condition for the blessing. So may the Lord lead us on to himself. And may the Lord show us in this marvelous peace offering. And in that one aspect that I never touched, and that is he shall lay his hand upon the head of the, sin off, upon the, head of the peace offering. That's identification. And you have the privilege and the opportunity every day of the week, no matter where you are, no matter in whose company you happen to be, to identify yourself with this man who made peace by the blood of the cross. Bring him into your conversations. Bring him into your social life. Bring him into your business. See that your hand is constantly laid by identification upon him, and the Lord will bless you. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning for his name's sake.